Let's turn in the scriptures to a very unfamiliar book, Haggai. It's just about 10 pages before the New Testament. So if you know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is, go to Matthew and turn back about 10 pages and you should find Haggai. We are learning about God through this unfamiliar, I think most unfamiliar portion of Scripture. But I think that we've learned over the past few months, it's actually to our detriment that we're not more familiar with these passages of Scripture because God reveals himself with awesome glory, really encouraging visions of God and who he promises to be for the people who trust him. It's uh, really to our detriment that we're not more familiar with them. We'd be a whole lot more anchored and a whole lot more encouraged if we were more familiar. I think we're going to discover the same again in Haggai today. I have pointed out pretty much every week, some of you are probably getting sick of this, that to understand the minor prophets well, it's really helpful to know where they fit in history. It's important to understand who they're writing to and why they're writing. A very basic timeline of Israel's history would begin with David and Solomon at the strongest point of the kingdom around a thousand years before Jesus. That's Israel at its strongest. In the days of Solomon's sons, the kingdom splits in two into northern and southern kingdom. And within three centuries, both of those kingdoms, the north first in 722, it's decimated by Assyria. And then about a century later, the southern kingdom weakens and weakens and itself is decimated in 586 by the Babylonians. Having this understanding of Israel at its strongest, at its split, and then how both kingdoms are eventually decimated is really critical to understanding the prophets. The prophets were basically like political commentators. They were public spokesmen for the Lord who said, your nation's going to collapse and here are the reasons that your nation is is headed for collapse. Here's the, the, the reasons for cultural disintegration. And they're spokesmen for the Lord publicly to the nation as it's headed for collapse. Now, there are men through whom God spoke longer messages, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're called major prophets. (laughs) They're the longer prophets. And then there are men through whom God spoke shorter, briefer messages. And we call them the minor prophets. And we are almost through all 12 of those minor prophets. Haggai, who we study today, is the 10th of those 12. They were all bound together in one book called the the 12, or the Book of the 12. And these are shorter writings of political commentators to a nation that is collapsing or that has collapsed. What is distinctive about Haggai is that Haggai communicates his message after the kingdom has fallen before it, it is rebuilt. It's actually while it's being rebuilt, Haggai communicates his message from the Lord. So one of the things that's really critical before we launch into reading Haggai is just to understand the people to whom he's writing. Seventy years earlier, Jerusalem had been decimated by Babylon. The, the, the valuable things throughout the city had been looted and carried away to Babylon as spoils of the war. Many people had died. There were open graves. 
The temple had been burned. Imagine a building where the roof is totally collapsed in and you can see maybe a few of these support beams that are half broken still standing. And the houses around, most of them have been burned and are standing in rubble. That's the people to whom Haggai is speaking. And we have to just see that the people to whom he's speaking are people who are, we might use the phrase, picking up the pieces. They're picking up the pieces. These people are standing around collapsed buildings, ransacked houses, ash piles, and the people are basically saying, this town is never going to be like it was. We need this. I hope that even as I've started describing that situation a few millennia ago, you're saying, wow, this book might have relevance to me. I would dare say that every one of us, to some degree, is in a pile of ashes, picking up the pieces. Some of us are picking up the pieces after loss, disappointment, abuse, divorce. And we don't believe that God's actually with us. We actually think that God may have abandoned us. We might think that we can never experience good again. Not after what we've endured. And that's not what God says through Haggai. His message is actually the opposite. You trust the Lord and there's hope. Even as you're picking up the pieces, there is hope. It's a great, great message. Haggai actually dates each of the four messages that he speaks. And you'll notice if you're in Haggai 1.1, says that this first message came in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest it's really interesting but with historical records we know the exact day that this message came to Haggai and was spoken to the two leaders in Jerusalem we would say August 29th, 520 B.C. You can date it because he's dating it by the accession year of King Darius, and we know those historical records. Haggai is speaking to the top two leaders in Jerusalem, the governor and the high priest. And he says, verse 2, this is what the Lord of hosts says. Now mark that phrase, the Lord of hosts. The New Living Translation has the Lord of heaven's armies. Or Chris Tomlin sings, the God of angel armies. That's the sense of it. The Lord of hosts says this, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses? While this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a purse with holes. Old Testament scholar Alec Motier explains that here. Haggai addresses the problem of inflation more explicitly than any other prophet. 
He says, his book is a tract for our times. Motier wrote that 30 years ago. He could have written it yesterday. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. My guess is, at this point, if you've never read Haggai before, you can probably get God's concern. The Jews who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, from their exile, immediately began focusing on building their own houses. While the temple wasn't touched, it it lay in ruins. They're beautifying their own homes and they're not prioritizing the temple. And God says, that explains why you're so dissatisfied in life. It's critical for us to get that. He says, the reason you're so dissatisfied is because you're focused on your houses and not on the temple. Now, the rest of chapter 1 indicates that the entire population in Haggai's day actually responded to Haggai's message by obeying. Really encouraging, exemplary response. And they immediately began to prepare to rebuild the temple. As soon as they responded by saying, okay, we're going to do what God has said, look at verse 13. Haggai gave him another message. The Lord said, I'm with you. You want to talk about encouragement to those people who are picking up the pieces, living amidst ruin? God says, I'm with you. And then in verse 15, it's recorded the exact date that the people began rebuilding the temple, which was three weeks after Haggai gave that message. So they immediately begin planning, and the work begins about three weeks later. The beginning of chapter 2 then records the second message from the Lord through Haggai. And this comes to the entire population of Jews in Jerusalem at the time. It came about a month after the work began, so about two months after the first message. We would date it October 17th, 520 B.C. Again, they dated things by the reigning king. We date it often by months. The Lord asks the people in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house 70 years ago in its former glory? What does it look like to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you a thousand years ago when, I, when you came out of Egypt. I'm with you according to that covenant. I keep my promises. My spirit remains in your midst. Don't fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land 
In other words, God's saying, I have a plan, not only for Jerusalem, but what's going to happen in Jerusalem is going to have ramifications for all of the universe. Whoa. (laughs) God's doing something big, even in the middle of this rubble. Right? And we got to stop here for just a minute after verse 6. And we need to remember that Jesus and his apostles considered this statement hugely significant. Jesus quotes it in uh, Matthew 24, 29, when he tells his disciples, quote, the powers of the heavens will be shaken before all people on earth witness the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The author to the Hebrews also quotes it in Hebrews 12, 26 through 29. You might turn over there. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, 26 through 29. The writer is quoting Haggai. Jesus and his apostles, they loved the book of the 12. They knew it well. And if you look at these verses in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 26, the writer quotes this verse to prove that God is one day, God who is a consuming fire, is going to bring fierce judgment on the earth. But even though the earth will be shaken, he says, everyone who follows Jesus will be given a kingdom that can't be shaken. And he quotes Haggai to say, everyone may experience God's judgment except those who follow Jesus will be given a kingdom by contrast that can't be shaken. It's powerful. Back to Haggai. You can see that Haggai's message was revered for centuries as God's word. Haggai chapter 2 verse 7 we pick up, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I think all of those promises center on Jesus. We'll see an example later in the book. If you are counting, you come to chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts said twice. If you're counting, God has now revealed himself in this short book as the Lord of hosts more than 10 times. Before the book's over, he's going to do it 15 times. In this short book, I am the Lord of heaven's armies. The third and fourth messages come on the same day, about two months later, mid-December of that same year, 520 BC. That's the day on which the foundation layer of the temple was finished. The third message is in Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19. And in that message, the Lord basically says that these sinful people are going to begin to experience his blessing. And it's not because they're so clean, but it's because God has made them clean. And it's an implicit warning saying, don't go back to minimizing my significance and maximizing the significance of your own lives and your own plans. Put me first. You will experience blessing. The final message then is recorded beginning in Haggai 2.20. And it's just later that same day. Let's pick up reading in the middle of verse 21. The Lord says again, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. 
I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. We've worked our way through the prophecy of Haggai. And I just want to thank you again for engaging, digging deep in reading and persevering in the reading of these books. Like I said, I want to encourage you, these are unfamiliar books. And if you're sitting there right now saying, whoa, this is hard. I, I don't quite get this. You're in good company. A lot of us are right there. But we do not do well to keep unfamiliar with God's word. We do well to work hard at understanding it so we can know how to apply it. I want to point out what I would say is the main command Haggai gives and start chewing on this to to apply it to ourselves. If I would summarize the word that Haggai commands the people to whom he's speaking, it's the word consider. These messages that came over about three months have consider as a regular theme. You'll see it in chapter 1 twice and in chapter 2 twice. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 5 and 7. He says twice, consider your ways. In chapter 2, if you flip the page, you'll see in verse 15 and then again in verse 18, consider from this day onward that God is blessing you. He's pouring out His blessings on you. Take time Think long and hard, we might say. Reflect. Stop. Think. This is Haggai's burden. And it is one of God's primary burdens for us. I want to just state it really generally right now. We don't live in a culture that is by and large known for its thoughtfulness. For stopping and thinking for reflecting. How many friends do you have that reflect on their life in a journal regularly? Can you name one? How many friends do you have that maybe take a day somewhere toward the beginning of the year or maybe toward the end of the year and they plan out their budgeting priorities for the year ahead? They stop and they think. How many friends do you have that say, you know what, I really need to grow in my marriage or I really need to grow in fighting my sin. I think I might take a class on it. Or I've been recommended these four books. I think I'm going to spend this year working through those four books. We live in a culture that will invest $100,000 and four years or five years of our lives in being equipped for a career. And it's hard for us to give 10 hours a year to our marriage. We're not in a very thoughtful, reflective culture. We don't regularly schedule time to be quiet 
I would dare say that we live in a very distracted culture, right? If there is a quiet moment, we fill it with emails, checking emails, checking texts, screen time, music. Let's do away with quiet, do away with consideration. We're the worst for it. Haggai's central concern is stop, think, reflect, consider. And he urges us toward two now more specific considerations. The first is this. Consider that life without God isn't good, no matter how many good things we may have right now. Life without God isn't good, no matter how many good things we may have right now. This is the first thrust when he says, consider your ways. It was there in chapter 1, right? I pointed out, consider your ways in verses 5 and 7. That's where God is, is making the observation that you're so concerned about building your own homes, but you're not concerned about the temple. Now this could seem like God is selfish. Hey, build my home first, <laughs> and then you can go about building your homes. That would be too upend the universe. We need to understand the significance of the temple to understand God's concern for these people. If you don't understand the significance of the temple, you won't understand why rebuilding it mattered to God. From the time that humans rebelled against God in Eden, God gave instructions for how humans could be reconciled to him and begin to experience life without the curse. He taught that the only way you could be reconciled to him, the only way that rebels like us could be reconciled to him was if we approached him through an intermediate person, a priest, who would speak to God on our behalf and speak to us on God's behalf, and they would offer a sacrifice, a substitute that would bear our punishment so that we could approach God. And that happened at altars, it happened at the, the tabernacle, it happened in the temple, right? The only way you can approach God, be reconciled to God, begin to experience the alleviation of the effects of the curse was if you approached God at the temple. And now you start to see the significance because when Jesus comes, he fulfills the temple. The temple curtain is torn the day of his crucifixion because everything in history for millennia up to that point has been anticipating that Jesus is going to be both the priest and the sacrifice. He's going to offer himself and he's going to represent us before God and reveal God to us. And once Jesus comes, the temple's no longer necessary because we approach God through the one to whom the temple had always pointed. I hope you're starting to see the significance of why building that temple before Jesus was critical. Because it was reminding these people that God needs to be at the center of life. A reconciled relationship with God is the most critical piece of your life. And the only way to be reconciled is through the temple. Or through what it prefigured in Jesus. So, for them to focus on building their own houses and not the temple was basically to say, we can get along in life okay without God. He doesn't really have to be a major part of our lives. We can live pretty well on our own. 
focusing on our things, our needs. And in chapter 1, Haggai says, stop, consider. How's life without God at the center going for you? God basically says there in verses 5 and following, you're doing a lot of work, you're eating a lot of food, you're making a lot of money, but none of it seems to really provide lasting satisfaction. Your money isn't getting very far, does it? It doesn't get very far, does it? In terms of actually fulfilling you. I pointed out that Motir, the Old Testament scholar, said this book focuses on inflation or how far money won't go. You earn money and it can't buy anything. That's what he's describing. Motir goes on and he says, what the prophet exposes here is not hardship that the people are facing, but non-fulfillment. They had seed to sow and food to eat and wine to drink and clothes to wear and gainful employment, but they had no true satisfaction. Their problem was not lack of goods, but of good. They had so many good things in life, but they weren't experiencing the good life. They had a lot, but no satisfaction. A few months ago, I went to the meeting, uh, the national meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, and I sat in a general session with Brian Fickert. He's a Yale-trained Christian economist, works at the Chalmers Center. I've read a few of his writings. I deeply respect him. In his presentation on a Christian approach to economics, he asked if humans are simply economic creatures. And he pointed out, research over the last five decades. He said, if you look over the past 50 years, the average economic status of Americans, as well as the majority of people on earth, has dramatically improved. He gave all kinds of charts and graphs to show this. Over the last 50 years, there has been incredible economic advance. And yet he also demonstrated that over the exact same period of time, the happiness of those people whose economic condition had dramatically improved, their happiness had declined. I wrote in my notebook as I was taking notes on a session, while economic conditions continue to improve globally and especially in the U.S., happiness has slightly decreased and depression has risen contrary to every expectation of secular economists. Hmm. Fickert's explanation was that modern economists have a wrong view of human beings. They have a wrong view of the good in human life. They miss the reality that humans are not fundamentally consumers. We are relators. We are not made primarily for consumption. We're made primarily for relationship and most significantly for relationship with God. Economic conditions are really only part of that picture of what makes us happy. The central, most important fact of our lives is what is our relationship with the God who made us, who made us for himself. Now, the people in Haggai's day were leaving God out of life. Now, I want to turn this now and make it even more pointed. Are you, are you leaving God out of life? 
Is he at the center? Do you put him first? Is he priority? You might say, I've got to work. I've got to pay my bills. My life is consumed with that. Have you forgotten that life's about a whole lot more than making ends meet? You might say, I've got to eat, I've got to sleep, I've got to exercise, I've got to take care of myself. Have you forgotten that life's about more than staying safe and healthy? Human life is made by God and for God. It's why we exist. We are made to live life with God at the center. And we work in order to mirror God who works. We eat and drink with thankfulness to the God who provides us all good things to enjoy. We sleep and rest as a constant reminder that God is the only one who never sleeps and we can totally trust him. Every mundane thing in life we are supposed to experience with God at the center. Is that how you're experiencing life? Are you relating to God morning to night? Haggai says, stop, consider, think carefully about your life. Your dissatisfaction is actually rooted in minimizing God's importance. Your emptiness, you might not even realize it, is actually a loneliness for God. Now, Haggai also encourages us that we can respond rightly to the message. We can say, God, I've been foolish. I haven't been putting you at the center. And by your grace, I'm going to change. We can humble ourselves. We can admit our foolishness. And we can put God at the center. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But that's all through Jesus. But if you don't, and you neglect God's design for your life to run with him at the center, you will experience dissatisfaction. And even worse, you'll face judgment. Second, consider that life with God is good, now and forever, no matter how many bad things you may face right now. Life with God is good now and forever, no matter how many bad things you may face right now. When those people in Jerusalem chose to submit to God's agenda for their lives, he immediately promised, I read it, chapter 1, verse 13, I'm with you. He repeated it a few weeks later, saying three times, look at Haggai 2.4, be strong, be strong, be strong, work hard for I'm with you. And then he says in verse, five, in verse 5, my spirit remains among you, don't fear. That's huge. These are people who are picking up the pieces. And the Lord of heaven's armies says right now, at this low point, I'm with you. Be strong. I'm with you. You have nothing to fear. I'm with you. This is his encouragement, his strengthening encouragement for these people. Now, what does it really mean that God is with us? Do you know that God is everywhere present? So in what sense is he with us? He's actually using an analogy, and he gets more specific at other places in Scripture. He's with us like a strong shepherd. 
is with sheep when they're in the valley. He's with us like the commander of heaven's armies goes out to battle with his troops. He's with us like a faithful husband is with his wife in the doctor's office. He's with us like a protective dad is with his son in the dark. He's with us, right next to us, supporting us, encouraging us, strengthening us. The God of heaven's army says, I'm with you. When you turn to me, when you put me at the center, I'm with you. It's huge. We should think, if we're in a situation where we're picking up the pieces, we should think, God is not distant from me. He's right here with me. He wants me to understand his promises and reckon them to be true for myself. He's with me. And this is one truth that God has been impressing on me the last few weeks. The Lord's especially been using some reading in the end of Genesis and even Wednesday night session on James 4. He's just exposed that on a day-to-day basis, I often face trials without reckoning that he's with me. My default thinking is that God is more distant from me. When I experience interruptions and frustrations in my day, I'm more prone to think, God, where are you? Than God, thank you that you're right here with me in this moment. I need to think, we need to think as believers, the Lord of heaven's armies is with me in all of the changes that I experience to my plans, in all of the interruptions, in all of the crises that I face. He's with me. The Lord of heaven's armies is with me. But the Lord doesn't just promise us his presence now. He promises to honor us forever. And he does that in a remarkable way. The last few verses of Haggai, the end of chapter 2, is this promise in verse 22 that the Lord's going to overthrow all kingdoms on earth. And then verse 23, he'll make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. That refers to honor. A signet ring was a valuable, very precious gem that a king would have worn on his finger or would have worn around his neck on a necklace. It would have been there because he would use it to stamp documents to prove that they actually came from him and no one else. Is a valuable possession, one of the most valuable possessions a king would have. And God says, Zerubbabel is going to be my signet ring. What he is promising is honor to Zerubbabel forever. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Tell me what this is. <laughs> Got to think through it again. You might note in your margin, right next to verse 23, Matthew 1.12. This promise to Zerubbabel is not intended for Zerubbabel's generation, but is intended for Zerubbabel's line. It happens in other places, even prophets who spoke at this time, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they would say, David is going to be king among them. And they're not referring to David, they're referring to David's great descendant, Jesus. Here, Matthew 1.12 echoes back to Haggai 2.23, You turn about 10 pages over to Matthew 1 and you read that after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and so on down to verse 16 till you get to Jesus, 
the Messiah. God's promise to honor Zerubbabel when he overthrows all the kingdoms on the earth actually is fulfilled in Zerubbabel's greatest descendant, Jesus. About a hundred years ago, 1930, there was a young Jewish student named Bezalel. That's what his family called him. It's his Jewish name. He was studying about two hours from here at the University of Pittsburgh, studying history. He had an older woman, black neighbor, named Carmen McKnight. She was a Christian. And for at least eight years on a daily basis, she prayed for Bezalel's conversion, that he, as a young Jew, growing up in his teen years, would understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. At 20 years old, she introduced him to a Bible teacher named John Solomon, who walked him through the Old Testament and showed him how Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament promises that the Jewish people were awaiting in their Messiah. And that Jewish young man prayed, Oh God, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the sacrifice for sin, if he is my Savior, as this man has indicated, if you will give me this conviction, I will believe on him right now. By October of 1930, that young man was converted. He turned his life to Jesus, trusting him as his Savior, as his sacrifice, as his King. Bezalel was converted in October of that year, and he would go on to finish with his, uh, I believe it was a major in history and a quadruple minor at the University of Pittsburgh. He finished in three years. He would go on to earn three more theological degrees, climaxing with a PhD from Johns Hopkins in archaeology and Semitic languages. We know him today by his English name, Charles Lee Feinberg. He's one of the most influential Old Testament evangelical scholars of the past century. In 1951, Feinberg published a commentary on Haggai, and he wrote about this final promise that God spoke through Haggai. Feinberg said, it's the end time that's in view, and the person of the Messiah is prefigured. The promise actually applies to the office Zerubbabel held as the ruler in Judah, because it couldn't have reference to Zerubbabel's own lifetime. In his day, there weren't any revelations as indicated here. Also note that the text says, in that day and not in this day. Feinberg said the messianic line was to come through Zerubbabel just as it was to come through David. Zerubbabel was honored by a place in the genealogy of the Messiah. Christ is truly the son of Zerubbabel as well as the son of David. All this that Haggai concludes with prefigures the precious Messiah. Love that. Love that coming from his lips and his pen. Do you know that no matter how bad things are today, if you have run to Christ, you will, because of Christ and your union with him, experience honor forever. No matter how bad things are today, God promises to be with you today and to honor you forever, all because of Jesus. God's plan for the world is that all kingdoms on this planet are going to be overruled by his chosen, honored King Jesus, and we will reign with him, the last page of Scripture says. 
we are going to experience honor because of Jesus, because of Zerubbabel's son. Now, I'd summarize Haggai's burden like this. All who live for themselves and neglect God will face dissatisfaction now and judgment forever. Well, those who reconsider their priorities and submit to Jesus will be blessed with God's presence now and with his honor forever. This message should encourage believers to persevere no matter the kind of rubble you're standing in. And this should encourage everyone. You may be here this morning and you say, I have minimized God to a very, very small part of my life. Sometimes I try to integrate him in, but he's nowhere near the center. And Haggai commands you, put God at the center. Repent of your God minimization. And instead, make God central in your life. Do what the Jews of Haggai's day did and fear the Lord. Obey him. Turn to him and say, we've done wrong. We're going to turn to you through Jesus. That's what we need to say right now. If you're guilty of God minimization, stop. Consider where it's gotten you. And put God at the center. If you need to change course, don't delay. Allie and Lydia are going to close our service singing, Come, let us return to the Lord. Today is the day. Don't delay.